All right. Um, tonight, we're actually going to be in Genesis 1 and 2. And I, had, I told you guys, uh, whatever it was, a couple weeks ago, that the way I was going to do this was I was going to try in one night to just present the various views of Genesis 1 and 2. And you all sat there and you all knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that. And you didn't tell me. And I thank you for that. You just let me figure it out on my own. And so uh, what we're going to do instead is I'm going to take the one interpretation per night. And we're going to go through that interpretation. We're going to read it, understand it in light of that interpretation of the way that this particular persuasion would read um, the text that's before us. And then the next time we come together in Bible study, we're going to take a different approach to it, and we're going to look at it from a different lens. There's three lenses that we're going to kind of look through on this text. Um, the first is, cre- is called creationism, but I don't really don't like that term because it, it makes the other ones sound like they don't believe that God created the world, and that's not true. Um, but it would kind of be more of, of probably what you're all used to. Um, typically, the, the young earth perspective uh, would read Genesis 1 and 2 the way we're going to tonight. And then the next time we meet together, which, bear with me, okay, next week is VBS week. We're not going to have Wednesday night activities on VBS week. I was told that was the tradition around here, so I'm going to try to hold to that, at least for this year. And so we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to meet next week for VBS week. And then the week after that, uh, I'm going to be at the convention in Dallas. And so I won't be here that week. The week after that is business meeting. So that's three Wednesdays between now and the, the, the time where we meet for the next time. So not this coming Wednesday or not next Wednesday, not the Wednesday after that, not the Wednesday after that, that'll be business meeting, but the Wednesday after that. So the fourth Wednesday from now, we'll discuss the progressive creationism view, which is more of the traditionally uh, old, older earth uh, persuasion would fall. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about historical creationism, which is a different view entirely, and it falls somewhere in the middle of those two, if that's possible. And, uh, and uh, I think, but I think it's worth noting and worth kind of going through the understanding, but it is a good bit different than probably what you're used to. So creationism, progressive creationism, and historical creationism are the three that we're going we're gonna to attempt to tackle as we go through Genesis 1 and 2. And so you, ha- you should have a worksheet there with some blanks on it. We're going to go through that as we walk through Genesis 1 and 2 to just talk about the different things that are, uh, are um, present here in the text or that we're looking at here in the text. And the one thing that I want I want to say two things about this that you'll have there in your blanks um, before we actually dive headlong into, um, into the creationism interpretation. The first is that one of the difficulties as we look at Genesis 1 and 2 is the ambiguity uh, that exists in the Hebrew words. That's one of the reasons why we have so many different views of the Genesis 1 and 2 account. So that first blank there, the ambiguity that exists in the Hebrew words. Um, so as an example of that ambiguity. One of the more problematic words that exists in our Genesis 1 and 2 account is the word for earth can also mean land. You can imagine how this would present a problem. Let's go to, let's think about Genesis 6. God flooded the 
Or did he flood the land? <laughs> right? It presents a problem, okay? Because you have a word that could mean earth, which to me and you, typically when we hear the word earth, we think of the big ball that's floating in outer space, right? But when it can also mean land, that takes on an entirely different meaning altogether. That can mean a, 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 a plot of a plot of that earth that this building is sitting on right now. Uh, so it becomes a little bit problematic. You have to let the context determine what is meant by that word. But sometimes the context isn't very helpful. Look at Genesis 1 verse 10. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean here where the context sometimes isn't very helpful. He says, God called the dry land earth. All right, I don't think that's very, I don't, I don't like that particular rendering of the word. I think it should say, and God called the dry land land. All right, and it could mean, it could be land. But the reason they translated it earth is because land, land doesn't sound great. That's essentially it. There's no context that would say God called the dry land earth. Well, he, did, he, he called it land. That's what he called it. That's what we call it. He called it land. And so I, I think it would be better to, to call that earth, but the simple reason for the translation earth there is just because land, land doesn't sound very good together. So uh, context doesn't always help in that regard, and so you kind of have to think about what makes the most sense in this passage, and you make a call. That's what translators do. And so that's one of the uh, issues where the ambiguity of uh, Hebrew word can be sometimes problematic, and it really depends on the person that's translating it and how they understand the text shaping up. The word uh, for made, the second little point here, the word for made usually means to make from something. It usually means to make from something, but can also mean create. So we'll get plenty of, of times in the text where the word is made, but that can either mean something like it already existed and that it was made. So like two dogs would make another dog, okay? The dogs already existed and they would make a dog. Uh, or it could mean create, that nothing like this existed and he created it. So that's strange and that's that's hard and we have to work through that and that's one of the, another reason why there's so many different views on this uh, on Genesis 1 and 2. And then the last one there the word for day and we've talked about this one before the word for day can mean a 24-hour process or it can mean a longer period of time. It's possible that it has a a, a wider array of, a wider range of meaning and it's used that way and on a number of occasions in Genesis. And so or in, in Genesis but then also in in uh, many other texts. And so it becomes difficult as we work through translation. Now, with all of those being said, that's one of the reasons why there's such difficulty. But now I want to dive into and think about the specifically the creationism view, the traditional creation, creationism view. And as creationism looks at Genesis 1 and 2, a creationist would typically say that though there are some people that would look at Genesis 1 and 2 and see it as something like poetry, creationists would say nothing in the text indicates that kind of reading. So as you look at Genesis 1 and 2, a creationist would typically say, um, that's not poetry. Now, why is that a big deal? You know? 
Because if you can say it's poetry, then you're basically arguing that there's lots of images. You've read poems, obviously, even English poems. When you read English poetry, there's lots of poetic language. And the poetic language is usually symbolic of something. And you have to discern its meaning. Well, a a creationist is going to say, look, if you look at the text of Genesis 1, this doesn't equate to Hebrew poetry whatsoever. Because, first of all, Hebrew poetry has parallelism. So what is parallelism? It's where two lines basically say the same thing, but they use slightly different words to say it. So if you think back to Psalms, the book of Psalms, you're going to see poetry all over the book of Psalms. They're going to say something one way in one line, and then the next line is going to say the exact same thing, but using slightly different words and clarify the meaning of the verse that comes before it. So if you, if you have a hard time understanding what that line means, you read the next line, and that gives clarity to the line before it. Well, you don't really see that in Genesis 1. Hebrew poetry also has meter which means that you're going to see the same beats in the first line as you see in the second line. You're going to see almost a one-to-one correlation. You're going to see uh, the first little image, and then you're going to look down the next line. You're going to see the, the corresponding uh, image in the, in the next line as well. And that goes for almost every word throughout that first line. It has another line that mirrors it almost exactly. So it has meter, has a certain beat to every, um, every couplet. Hebrew poetry also has figurative language. Hebrew poetry has figurative language. Um, when you, a lot, of, a lot of times when we use the word figurative, when we're looking at the Bible, biblical interpretation, some people, that makes them really queasy, all right? Some people think like figurative language, whoa, no, no, no. I take the Bible literally, Okay, And we've talked about this. We briefly talked about this a few weeks ago. But you you have to understand, figurative language is not a curse word when it comes to reading the Bible. Figurative language is used often in Scripture. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Is he really a lamb? In Revelation, he's the lamb standing as though slain. Is he really a lamb standing there? Or is John using figurative language to describe Jesus' role? Of course, he's using figurative language to describe Jesus' role. He's seeing Jesus there, and he describes him as the lamb standing as though slain. But here's the deal with figurative language. Figurative language doesn't mean that he just made it up or that it's false. A lot of times we think that, right? Well, it's figurative, so you're saying that it doesn't mean anything. No, 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 no. Figurative language, this is one of the the things, is once we determine in the text that he's using figurative language here, what's our job now? To figure out what that figure means, right? So what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? The Lamb, what is that? He's a sacrifice. So is he literally a sacrifice? Yes, he's literally a sacrifice. Is he literally a lamb? No, he's figuratively a lamb. He's literally a sacrifice. Does that make sense? So the figurative reading is for us to get to the literal meaning. That's our job. 
Now, in Revelation, it becomes particularly difficult because we all agree that these are, these are images that we're looking at. We just don't all agree on what they mean. Right? So it becomes really hard to do that in some cases. But another thing you see in, the, in those, those figurations that John has in Revelation is that we go back into the Old Testament or we go back into the rest of the re- book of Revelation and we can discern the meaning from the text in the Old Testament that these figures represent that John is using. But do we get that in Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is that a figure for? It sounds like it's a figure for him creating the heavens and the earth. (laughs) So it doesn't sound like it really is poetry of any kind or any kind of image. And so what is typically referred to when we see poems is that there is a pattern to Genesis 1 that we'll see unfold. And it is, and we'll, we'll see it here in just a second. But that's usually what people point to and say, because of this pattern, it seems like poetry, but it doesn't read like Hebrew poetry. And so that, uh, the creation in perspective would say that. Now, the other thing that, that you have to answer when you look at, at Genesis 1 and 2 and we're studying it is you have to say, well, why does this exist? What is the purpose of having Genesis 1 and 2 here? Let's not forget This is not a pamphlet. Genesis 1 and 2 is not a pamphlet that we found on the street somewhere. Genesis 1 and 2 is part of Genesis 1 through 50, all right? Genesis 1 to 50 is also part of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. We think all of those were comprised by, or virtually all of it was comprised by the same person, Moses, okay? But the Pentateuch also fits into the rest of the canon of the Old Testament, And the canon of the Old Testament fits within the canon of the entire Scripture. All of it's telling the same story, so it should all really fit together. So whatever interpretation you take of Genesis 1 and 2, it can't just stand in isolation. This isn't just a story that somebody told and just kind of tacked on the beginning. You need to know this. It's got to have a function. Why is Genesis 1 and 2 here? And the creationists would say the purpose of this account is to create a theocracy for Israel that's founded on the sovereign God of creation, theocracy. It's a theocracy. What is a theocracy? A government that is ruled by God, right? So essentially when we're looking at this theocracy, Moses would be writing Genesis 1 and 2 for the purpose of telling Israel who their God is and what he has done. So it's rooting all of their foundation in one central creator. So when the, when the cultures around you are worshiping Baal and Asherah and whatever, Molech and all of the other gods, we're not. And they worship the gods so that they can have uh, kids, children. Or when they worship this, this god so that they can have rain, you need to understand that the god we serve created all of it. This is what we're talking about. So this would be the purpose for which Moses includes this beginning of, of Genesis. Um, so with that being said, let's dive into Genesis 1, uh, 1 and 2. So really what we're looking at here is two, diff- two sections of Genesis 1 and 2. The first section appears to go from Genesis 1, 1 all the way through 2, 3. And then the second section goes from Genesis 2, 4 all the way to, uh, to the end there, uh, Genesis 2, I thought I had it down there, but maybe I don't. Yeah, Genesis 2, 4, all the way to verse 25. 
so we're going to look at the first section first. Um, let's read it here. We're going to try to read through all of this if we can. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, of the waters. So in, in one one, you have what appears to be God creates everything out of nothing. You have there the first four words. In the beginning, or first five words, in the beginning, God created. The word for create there is the Hebrew word bara, which basically gives the inclination, the 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 um, the uh, the look or appearance that it was created out of nothing. Essentially, the word bara is only used when God is doing it. God is the only actor that uses this verb, and so it appears to be that He's creating this out of nothing. There's no material that exists, and there is now something where before there was absolutely nothing. Now, some will argue, and, and if you look at the, the, the way the chapter 1 unfolds, it's a, it's a pretty good argument, I think, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and sometimes even verse 2 as well is a title over the entire chapter, over the entire section. So, in the beginning God created the, he- created the heavens and the earth is a title for what you're about to read. You're about to read him creating the heavens and the earth. There's a big problem with that, though. You think about what that is? If, ch- if verse 1 is a title, it's not God actually creating the heavens and the earth. That's, that's just the title for this section. And as you read the section, that's him creating the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 is the only thing that gives us the clue that God created something out of nothing. So it really removes God creating things ex nihilo, that we believe God did create everything out of nothing. So I don't think that's a very logical argument. I don't think we should use that if this is the position that we take up. It's, uh, I don't think that that makes sense that it's a title over the in, entire uh, chapter. But basically, the, the way this is, is, is working is essentially God walking up to a blank canvas or a, a desk, you might say, and he just takes his creative juices and just kind of throws it out on the desk. And there's just a blob of nothingness that's kind of sitting there. There wasn't anything there before, and now there is something, and it's, but it's just sort of a blob. You can look at that in verse 1 and 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So it's just blank canvas. It's just nothingness is sitting there, but it's kind of a blob of a mess. And then what happens in verses 3 to 5, look at that. He says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So he clicks on his desk lamp, all right? (laughs) Right? Is basically what what happens. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. Now the word, as we said before, the word day, that first little bullet point there, the word day can mean age. But here's what the creationists would argue, and, and it's a pretty convincing argument, that it, the word day, even though it can mean age, it never means an age when it's preceded by an ordinal. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, an ordinal, Right? It never means an age when it's preceded by an ordinal, okay? Um, at least there's no context of that in Scripture. So when the, in the commandments, 
when on the, the, the fourth commandment is uses the word day to keep the Sabbath day holy. What does it mean there, right? It, it means a, a singular 24-hour period, doesn't it? doesn't mean an age. And so they would argue that it, it never means a longer period of time whenever, there's an, whenever it's preceded by an ordinal. Um, so it, what, we, what we have here in, in Genesis 1, 3, and 5, 3 to 5, is that God basically creates light as an energy. Okay, he just creates light as an energy. He hasn't made the sun and the moon and the stars yet. He will do that in a couple days. All right, it's going to take him a second to do all of that. But before he does that, he creates light simply as an energy. All right, there's light and there's non-light. There's this light energy and there's non-light energy. So here is the light turned on his desk lamp and he's got his creative juices are flowing and he's about to start making some stuff out of the primordial ooze that's sitting in front of him at this moment. All right, day two. Let's look at Genesis 1, 6 to 8. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or perhaps sky. And there was evening and there was morning on the second day. This is the pattern, by the way, that a lot of people recognize. And they say, well, maybe this is poetry. The pattern that they recognize is God saying something. Literally every day has this. God saying something. Then it, and then what, the content of what he said. And then it coming about. And then him doing an evaluation of it. He saw that it was good. And then there's him doing something with it, right? Moving it around and manipulating it. And then at the end, there was evening and there was morning on the whatever day. So that's the pattern that they see, and it unfolds in every single day. And so they, some people will look at that and say that it's poetry, but creationists would say no. Now on this, this particular day, so God separates the waters above from the waters of the earth. Now some would argue on this second bullet point that the word, and this is in the creationist argument here, some would argue that the word expanse indicates a canopy was used to cover the earth, or that there was some form of a canopy that covered the earth. But I don't necessarily think that it has to be that way. Because if you think about what the author of Genesis is doing with what he is saying, if you think about, just think about this for a second. You have... What is sitting on the table? What does he describe is sitting on the table in front of God now? What did he put there? Look at verse, look at, back at verse 2. What is that? Land Not land yet. He says, and void, without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over what? The face of the waters. Literally everything is waters. Okay? That's what has happened here. Everything is waters. What's that? Are we talking about a planet? You keep calling it a law, but are we talking about a planet? Uh, well, that's a good question, and I think we would probably have to, have to get to heaven to find out exactly, but I think, um, I think, it's a, I think a blob is a better word for it, because I think what he's about to do is create the land and shape it. So like Plato, with Plato, he hasn't made the claymation Rudolph yet, okay? He's just, it's just a Plato. 
Uh, but but mat- the material is there. But listen, this is what he's doing. So look, here's waters out here on the table. And then what does he do? He separates waters from waters. What is he going to do in Genesis 6? Bring them back together. What you have in Genesis 6 is decreation. He's starting over. The difference would be he's preserving a family. So it's not completely over. There's salvation still there. There's grace, there's mercy still there. So a lot of people, I think, read into the word expanse because it can also, this is one of those other ambiguous words, it can also mean a firmament or a canopy or it can also mean a lot of other things. But they think, well, why else would you say he created this expanse? He separated the waters above and the waters below because it's about to rain in Genesis 6. And the rain is going to come from above and below, right? (laughs) And he's clear on that in Genesis 6. The rain comes from above and below. So he's bringing the waters back together and he's saving one family. So thematically, it's fine that he separates the waters above from the waters below. I don't think that that necessitates some sort of canopy over there. But again, it's debatable. What's that? Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. So again, blob, I think, is a better, a better way of saying it. But again, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what blob come, what the word blob would come from. Uh, okay. So, and then, so day three, Genesis one, nine through 13. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, the fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according... in which is, which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and the trees bearing fruit in which is, in which is their seed, each according to its, own, its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning on the third day. So God separates the dry land from sea and brings forth vegetation. Let's, um, let's keep going. Uh, wait, where am I? Make sure I'm on the right one. Yep. Genesis 1, 14 to 19. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night in the stars. And God set them in in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. Now, it's possible that the sun, moon, and stars were created with apparent age. It is possible that they were created with apparent age. 
that light would come to us uh, from outer space of stars that uh, were born on creation, but he determined the time that the light would reach us, uh, that kind of thing. So it would give an apparent age to the, the created order um, that, we would, that we would be observing in outer space. But, uh, and that's what a creationist would typically argue, is that, yeah, they're tons of distance away, and God brought the light close enough so that it would reach us at about this time. And so that would kind of, as their kind of counter-argument, I guess, to the astronomer. Um, but God makes, here are the lights. And now, the question that usually comes up is, how would plants survive, how would anything survive without some sort of light source? But I don't know that that's a great argument. And the reason I don't know that's a great counter-argument to the creationists is because well, light was created really on day one. So let there be light would be sufficient for anything to live or to die. In addition to that, it's a really foolish argument because the rest of the Bible is clear that nothing sustains itself. God sustains everything. God holds everything in its place. So um, yes, light is necessary for plants to live, as anybody who has a yard will tell you. Uh, But but at the same time, it's kind of foolish to think that God couldn't sustain something for an extended period of time. I don't think it's a very great argument, but um, sometimes it is pushed back against the creationist. Um, so let's look at 20, at 1, 20 uh, to 23. Uh, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. This is the second use of the word bara, which implies that nothing like these creatures existed prior to God creating them. Now, you can understand the the argument that's going on kind of in the culture would be this sort of evolutionary Darwinism um, uh, or naturalism, which it's also called, which is that really nothing existed, and then all of a sudden there was, there was something through a big bang, and then eventually everything evolved from single-celled organisms and eventually came to be over, over the course of millions of years. It, it doesn't seem like gen, the Genesis account is compatible with that idea at all. Now, I, I think that's, um, you know, obviously that's going to be kind of a standoff between, uh, it's not proof to them at all, but it is going to be kind of a standoff. Well, I I can't go that way because this is what the Bible says. You're not going to come this way because I haven't proven anything to you. I'm just saying, I don't think the Bible allows for that at all. But this is the second time the word, uh, the second time the word bara is used, which means that these creatures didn't exist before this. God simply instantiated them. He, He created them there in their place. Yes. Yeah. That says species, the species that we know came into existence all at once. There is no common ancestor. They boom. Came Do you know the name of this research? No, I'm not 
Cambrian. What's that? Isn't that what he references? Cambrian explosion? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't heard that, that work before. If you get that title, we can, you can share it with us. Um, but uh, essentially, I think one of the things that's, that becomes pretty clear, and especially the creationists would argue, is that it would rule out altogether any form of Darwinian evolution, uh, any, any form of, of that kind of way of thinking. Um, and there's, there's even a, there's a book that's just come out um, called uh, Creation, uh, let's see, I, I can't even think of the title of it now, forget it, forget I said anything, uh, yes, yeah, it's, uh, yep, I'll think of it in a minute, it's okay, we'll just forget it, it went right out of my head, oh well, uh, it's gone, <laughs> so, so anyway, they, they come about on day five, so second use of the word Barah. Uh, the next one is going to be in the next passage. So 1, 24 to 31. Uh, let's, let's read that. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, Barah, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Um, So God brings forth the beasts of the earth, and then God makes man in his image. Meaning what? What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? It's a question a lot of people have wrestled with. What does it made, mean to be made in the image of God? He tells us right there in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. And so that, why? This is where you talk. Yeah, Jeannie. What's that? Okay, is that what he says? What does he say? What's that? Giving him dominion. That's what he means. He says, let us make man in our image. 
after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. Now, you, so the answer to the blank there is dominion. I don't think so. Uh, and the reason I don't think so is because Adam is about to have dominion over the livestock and over all the land, over all the, the created order. And how do we know that? Because in Genesis 2, what is God going to do? He's going to bring the animals by him, and he's going to name them. In Genesis 1, what did we see? God was naming everything. He called it light. He called it darkness. He called it day. He called it night. He called it sun, moon, stars. He called it land. He called it sea. He had dominion. Now he creates man in his image, and he gives them dominion, and then he brings the animals by Adam. What do you want to name them? He has dominion. If you get to name something, it's yours. Right? The kids name their stuffed animals. You let them name all the... Right? They, they have dominion over it. I think that's what he means, and I think that's the explanation of what he's saying there. And then the last little bit here, we got to go... Um, in 2, 1 to 3, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all, the, all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all, his work, all the work that he had done in creation. So the, here's an interesting thought is that we have a year. What is a year? A year is one trip around the sun, right? We have a month. What is a month? month is the lunar calendar, and one, right, is uh, whatever it is the, the, based, based on the lunar calendar. And then we have a week. What is the week based on? God's work in creation. That's it. So we have um, the concept of the week comes from God's work in creation. That's it. Um, now, when we get into Genesis 2, and I, I, I want to introduce, I think, we can, I think we can go through it, um, or we'll go as far as we can, and then we'll, we'll pick up the next time. On the surface, uh, Genesis 2 sort of presents a challenge because as we take creation this way, when we get to Genesis 2, there seems to be some things in a different order. And that is somewhat, it's at least a challenge that needs to be addressed. So when you look at Genesis 2, it appears that God makes the trees in verse 9, and the beasts of the field in verse 19, and he makes, uh, he makes, but he makes man in verse 7, which is prior to in the chronology of chapter 2 is he makes man prior to making all these other things, where in Genesis 1, all those other things come before mankind. So it's at least something that needs to be addressed. Um, look at verses 4 to 7. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. When no bush on the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. There's his dominion that he's given. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust 
of the, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the chapter of Genesis, this chapter of Genesis is essentially representing to the creationist a zoomed-in view of, 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 of the first six days in chapter 1. A zoomed-in view of day 6, sorry, of day 6 in chapter 1. So what we're looking at here is day 6, but zoomed in on a, on a very close microscopic level showing us all the interactions that happened on that day. Now the word aretz, or eretz, sometimes meaning earth, can also mean land. And so this, is, this will be kind of pivotal as we kind of unfold what, what's happening here in, in chapter 2. Let's look at verses 8 to 10. And the Lord God planted a garden in, the, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of, uh, and, sorry, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight of, uh, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So verse 5 appears to be speaking specifically of the promised land. If you go back to verse 5, he says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, the implication there would be in the promised land, so the land that Israel would eventually inherit. That's probably what is in view there under the creation perspective. So the promised land, where the trees of the open country that are in the rest of the world, so the trees of India hadn't yet kind of made their way over to the promised land or, or whatever. Um, so the trees there haven't made their way over. And then verse 9 seems to be taking, talking specifically of Eden. So he says in verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. The tree of the knowledge was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when he's talking about the bush of the field and all that of the rest of the world, that hasn't made it into the promised land. And inside the promised land is the Garden of Eden, and that's where he's causing everything to spring up, right? And so that, that essentially the way a creationist would kind of walk through that uh, seeming contradiction for the, the out-of-orderedness that happens from chapter 1. Um, does that make sense? That makes sense of how they're making that argument. Now look at verses 11 to 14. The name of the first is Pashon. It, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of uh, Havala, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Um, so the verses basically function like a long parenthesis. These 11 through 14 function like a long parenthesis, which is basically just telling you how lavish the land was, essentially, um, before... Well, they poison it with their sin. <laughs> that's, that's effectively what, what's about to happen. But essentially functions like a long parenthesis here in the middle of a story about uh, God forming Adam and Eve and placing them in this garden just to kind of depict how, how great this land was. Look at verse 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. So God places the man in the garden to work it and to guard it. That's what keep it means, to work it and to guard it. And then he, God gives the man his first command, which is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a command that he's about to um, break in the next chapter. Let's finish this chapter off, verses 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should, should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. There's the dominion that he's given to him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the, uh, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So it would imply that obviously there's no sin that has yet made its way into the garden because that's obviously the turn that takes place in chapter three. Adam now has the responsibility of naming as evidence of his dominion. Adam has the responsibility of naming as evidence of his dominion. Eve was created for Ad, from Adam and was the only helper fit for him. Now, is this typically the way that you've heard, you've grown up hearing Genesis 1 and 2 taught, right? I think the vast majority of us come from a creationist perspective. I don't think that should be foreign to any of us. But essentially, that's how the Genesis 1 and 2 would unfold. But what you need to understand is that there are, there are legitimately viable ways that are different from that of understanding this text unfolding. We're going to look at those the next time we come together in Bible study. But the main point that I want to drive home, that I hope to help us to understand, is that there are certain aspects of theology that we need to close our hand around. That time, that our understanding in Scripture has more than clearly revealed God is, or Jesus is the uh, only begotten Son of God. He is eternal. He's co-eternal with the Father. He's one of the one member of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, um, that we are fallen, that we need salvation. These things we should wrap our hands around. There's no giving those up. There are other things that we can always grow in understanding and clarity, things that we can always um, seek to grapple with and wrestle with and understand better. And so essentially what we're, we're going to be doing in the next couple times is looking at these alternative views and understanding what is within the bounds of Scripture and what is outside the bounds of Scripture. Okay, any questions on that as we go? Good, because I'm already dead. Uh, they're already going to kill me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for a time to even just read your word and talk briefly about the things that we find here in the text of Scripture. Um, I pray, Lord, that all of this cumulatively all of the stuff that we study and understand and read would add to our knowledge, would at least allow us to 
grapple with different perspectives, understand better what we believe, but all of it serving to grow us in the knowledge of the truth and understanding you better and falling in deeper love with you as the one who has provided for us salvation and eternal life um, by your grace through faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. All right. To the children's building, follow your piece of paper.